In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 7. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Were you a fan of the show back in Season 4? If so, do you know what was special about Episode 10 that season? I'll pause for 10 minutes while you think of the answer. Uh, actually, no, I'll just tell you. That was the first episode where we had an illustration created for it. Fan of the show and talented artist Wukish Godluski, or Luke as I call him, sent me some art inspired by one of the stories on that episode. That opened the door to more illustrations from him, and then so many of our other talented artists. As we approach our 10th anniversary, it means a lot to be reminded of milestones like that. And Luke has created an outstanding graphic novel that I want to make you aware of. It's called Painter, and in it, Luke matches his visually stunning artwork with a dark, compelling story, reminiscent of the hidden worlds of H.P. Lovecraft and Algernon Blackwood. Luke has launched a Kickstarter where you can support the project and get yourself digital or paper copies of Painter. Check the show notes for a link to the Kickstarter project and treat yourself to the sweeping madness found within the pages of Painter. Ah, yes. The sweeping madness. The sweeping madness. The storage unit is gone. Or it isn't. It's there, but it's gone. Not the unit itself, the actual building, the contents. No, I stepped inside today and they were all still there. I knew they were all still there. I I could feel like they were all still there. But they weren't. Like, I could see them, but I couldn't. All I could see was the void, and in the void, I could see the tape. I took it and left. I couldn't stand being in there any longer. I didn't know it was a tape when I took it. It was inside an envelope marked Care of L.P. Hernandez, yet another familiar author being dragged into this. Inside was the tape. The quality was very degraded. We've cleaned the audio as best we could. Mike Delgadio and Jeff Clement helped me with some clever sampling and digital manipulation involving their own vocal imprints. We felt it was important you hear this tape as clear as possible. It was presented to me from the void, after all. There was a note inside the envelope, too, which I've recorded and added to the beginning of the accounts. It tells the tale of The Hole in the Great Grass Sea.
interview with Randall Brown, geologist, pertaining to the incident on the Llano Estacado in West Texas. 23 May, 1985. State your name and position, please. I'm Randall Brown. I'm a geologist by trade. I was educated at Texas Tech University and I've been working in Texas and Oklahoma, mostly for oil companies for the past 20 years. Thank you, Randall. Is it okay to call you Randall? It's fine. Thank you. And you are aware this is being recorded? I am aware. So, how were you contacted regarding the anomaly? (laughs) The anomaly? Is that what you're calling it? I was probably the only geologist within 50 miles at the time, wrapping up a job near Seminole. I have no idea how you or they tracked down my hotel room, but it was not a pleasant conversation. That is to say, I did not feel as if I had much choice in the matter. What were you told? Only that my expertise was required. Emphasis on required. I was intrigued with what little information was given, but forgive me, I don't recall the specifics. From the time you were contacted? It was the same day, a couple hours later. I was picked up by a man in a black sedan. He said little on the drive. I don't know if he was part of the team, but I didn't see him again after that day. What happened then? (sighs) Well, like I said, I'm familiar with that part of Texas, the Llano Estacado. Did you know that it's bigger than New England? <clears throat> anyway, it's a desolate place. I've never felt smaller than when I stood at the edge of that great grass sea. Well, first I was taken to the rancher's house. Uh, uh, Mr. Guerra was his name, but everybody called him Rich. The team was there, filling their canteens and using the facilities. They kept talking about it, it, it. They were very animated, excited even. A mix of military men and three-letter types. I honestly don't know what agencies were represented. They weren't exactly wearing name tags. No one introduced me, and I was just kind of there. The anomaly? (sighs) We took two SUVs out to the site. Mr. Guerra had about 500 acres, and this was in a far-flung corner of the property. I caught bits and pieces of the story on the drive. Above the anomaly, there was a long, dead tree. The climate is more conducive to desert foliage outside of the occasional mesquite. Mr. Guerra decided to take it down using his ATV. Thought he might recover some of the wood as home decor. Never got the chance to. To recover wood? That's right. He downed it. It cracked in half, actually. Then the ground opened up and disappeared. The anomaly. If you insist on calling it that. So, what was your experience? What did you see? There were a couple of tables, lots of ropes and buckets. When we stopped the vehicle, I got out and was met by a man who introduced himself as Jones. Never said whether that was his first or last name, and I never asked. He seemed to be managing the project. He gave me rough expectations for my job, analyzing what was brought out of the hole and what would be in future experiments. Then he brought me to it. 
It was a hole, like I said, an anomaly, as you've called it. It was about 10 feet in diameter, almost a perfect circle, like it was cut by precise instruments, by a, I don't know, God? The sunlight reached only so far. Then it was just darkness. To call it a hole doesn't capture the, the feeling of it. It was the, the wrongness of it, the perfect symmetry and the feeling that, the feeling that it shouldn't be there. The Lano Estacado is a, is a brutal, desolate place. It's the place where life gives up. I described it as a sea, and that's exactly how it feels. Like you're in a shallow, brown sea that slowly rises to the west, interrupted here and there by the corpse of something that sprung up during a wet season only to spend the next decade withering. And there's this hole, this perfect circle carved out of the earth. From what I gathered, based on the conversations at that moment, they didn't know how deep it was. One had been figured out to that point. Just that, they couldn't find the bottom. There were professionals there, but I was the closest thing to a scientist. Mr. Guerra had a few days alone with it. His homegrown experiments were on par with what the team had managed to come up with. He tossed in rocks to start, and bricks. He heard nothing, no sound of impact. So he lugged a broken ice chest out to the hole and tipped that in as well. Still nothing. Just the whistle of that hundred-pound cube descending into darkness. Next was the fishing line. Mr. Guerra had been uh, deep-sea fishing off Baja a few times. Not for many years, but he had plenty of line. His experiment was actually pretty clever. He smeared some sort of gel on the bottom of a lure and buffered it in case it brushed up against the side of the hole, reasoning that if it reached the bottom, it would attract some detritus. He estimated he dropped about a thousand meters of line into the hole. Nothing. He tied that line onto another, more than doubling its length. Still nothing. A couple of conversations in town followed. A grainy picture of Mr. Guerra standing next to the hole, pointing at it in the weekly newspaper. The next day, the suits show up, and the road to his property is closed for construction. And the men? What have they done? It wasn't much better. Dropped in bigger stuff in the first day. The military guys were trying to wring some military use from it. The three-letter types kept walking to the edge of it, hands on their hips, shaking their heads. It was as if at the moment they turned their backs to it, and they forgot it existed. Each time they saw it, it was like the first time. Okay, great. Now, as for the experiments with recording sound... <clears throat> uh, I don't remember whose idea that was. We had about you know, 15,000 feet of line out at that point. Someone tossed a lit book of matches, a, a flashlight, really just juvenile stuff, you know? One of the three-letter guys pulled out a cassette recorder and started dictating notes. Ten minutes later, we were lowering it into the hole. Give us a moment. What do you... Oh, please don't. Shh.
make of that? That wasn't the first recording. The first recording was only static. One hour of static. One of the three-letter guys listened to the whole thing. He stood under the canopy they put up to block out the sun. Yes. Then he jumped in. He jumped into the hole. He... He turned around and held out the recorder like, Can you believe this? That's what was written on his face. His eyes were crazy, but he was smiling like... Like he understood something much better than he had only a few minutes before. He placed the recorder on a table and stepped out from the canopy. He parted a couple of the suits, didn't pause to think about it. Took, took his next step into nothing. He didn't even scream. And that's when things started to turn. Do you need a moment? We're nothing. 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 Are you ready to continue? from our last session. And yeah, the suit jumped into the hole. Yes, that's right. And what happened then? Not a lot. We all just stood there, wondering if it really happened. When we decided it had happened, we wanted to know why. Was he suicidal? One of the other suits knew him. He was pretty shaken up about it. Told us the man had just had a baby was moving up at whatever agency they worked for. It was well liked. I don't imagine there was an obituary for him. Certainly wasn't an investigation. Once the confusion passed and his co-worker was escorted off the property, the mood shifted. They were excited. The military guys especially. You said it wasn't the first recording. Uh, the screaming? Yes, the screaming. Although we're not sure that's what it is. When was the second tape recorded? The next day. It was the evening after he jumped. I think the adrenaline dump that followed the incident left us all feeling pretty ragged. We drove back to Mr. Guerra's house. I'm not sure if he was paid to host us or, like me, didn't have a choice in it. We camped in the house, a few on the porch outside. I brought a bucket of soil and rocks with me, but there wasn't a good place to analyze it. I fell asleep in a rocking chair without realizing it. Everyone crashed. A little after sunrise, my bladder and the rising chatter in the room forced me to open my eyes. The military guys were checking each room in the house. They were on edge and not speaking. Apparently, one of their guys took off during the night, and the tracks indicated he went back to the anomaly. There wasn't enough room in the remaining SUV to transport us all at once, so I went in the second group back to the site. They found the recorder on the table under the canopy. Fishing line wrapped around it again. No sign of the military guy. They were playing it when I arrived. The, uh, 
sound you heard was about 15 minutes in. At that point, the recorder would have been uh, several thousand feet down. The thickness of the Earth's crust varies throughout the planet, which can impact the temperatures you would encounter. It never seemed hot enough to damage the instruments. Uh, that might just be because it isn't just a hole, in my estimation. What is it? Well, it's an anomaly, isn't it? I'm asking for your professional opinion. Professionally, I'm a geologist. What I found in the buckets wasn't all that interesting. Everything you would expect to find in a hole that deep in that part of Texas. Your non-professional opinion, then? My non-professional opinion is that I'm not qualified to speak about it. I can tell you what was said. I can tell you how most of them died. I can't say why. I don't think they all had the same experience. What happened to him, the military man? Jumped, as far as I know. That was a consensus within the group. They splintered then. The two remaining military officers and the suits. I was the odd man out, so I mostly kept to myself. I think they were all a little scared that they would somehow inherit blame for two deaths. Not that they could have stopped either man. But the failure to report the first death probably created space for the second. Still, they were looking at this situation through a completely different lens than me. And as the shock wore off, their interest in the anomaly and what was on the tape intensified. I gave up, pretending to do my job. They could have pulled a 10,000 karat diamond out of that hole and I wouldn't have cared. What did you do? Mostly hovered between the two groups. As I did not know either man, I was not invested in the same way as the others. About midday, the suits took off and returned with a video camera and a monitor. Plumbers use uh, similar cameras for looking down sources of leaks or clogs, but I believe theirs was military grade. We lowered it down and... Take your time. It was nothing for a long time. Soil and sediment. The monitor was maybe you know, nine inches and grainy. It was almost like watching television static. 1,000 feet down, 2,000. I might have been the only person to notice. Notice what? The walls. The walls were scored. Not the whole way, but here and there. It was obvious to me that these were from fingers, from hands grasping for purchase. One of the jumpers, or both of them. What a way to go, you know? Plummeting through darkness and never knowing which thought, which breath will be your last, if any. What's worse to think about is... Is what? There's a part of me that thinks it doesn't end. How's that? The whole... The anomaly. I can only understand it through my 47 years on this planet, my education and my job experience. None of that can, can frame it. It's not a whole. And if it's not a whole, if it's something else, well, the possibility exists. What possibility? That they're still falling. They're falling in darkness, 
You can't sleep, you can't rest, or even think beyond the rush of wind past your face. You'd go insane. Absolutely. It would drive you insane, and that would be the surest respite. If your mind was lost, if you could successfully transport your consciousness elsewhere. Not that it matters. What did you see on the monitor? Nothing I can explain. Try. I don't have the words. You mentioned there was no investigation. Not while I was there. Who was the next person to... Die? Like I said, they weren't wearing name tags, even the military boys. There was a myriad of reactions to the video, at different points as well. I would see nothing of interest, and one of the men would peel away from the group and vomit or scream. Meanwhile, I see almost nothing recognizable, just soil. A bit of stone every now and then, and there's fucking gashes. But, but then, I did see something. Maybe 10,000 feet down at that point. There were only three of us left around the monitor. What did you see? Nothing that made sense in the moment. I just... I had a... A visceral reaction. I saw it. Something, whatever it was. And I compartmentalized it all at once. I walked away. My brain felt too big for my skull. Can you try to describe it? It's very important. Who are you with again? I am not permitted to disclose. Why is it important? How do you mean? The men are gone. They're either dead or... I don't know. So, why does it matter? Plant another tree over it, I say. Good luck filling it. That'll never happen. Why? You know why. Have you been there? If you spend more than a handful of minutes there, you will understand. You don't have to jump in to know it's not from this world. What do you mean? It's... Uh, it's a mistake. It's something left over. Left over? I don't know. I really don't. I think about it, I try to work it out, and then my, my thoughts spiral. Randall, you're the only person with first-hand knowledge of what happened out there. That's incredibly valuable to us, to the people in the field. The military officers? <clears throat> you're the only person with first-hand knowledge. You still have people out there? Of course. Has anyone else died? I am not going to comment on that. <sighs> I'll try to organize my thoughts. But to eliminate some of your anxiety, I'll offer my recommendations now. Leave it alone. Throw a giant manhole cover over it, put up an electric fence, there's no military benefit to it. And if you've got scientists out there now, I'm guessing they're the wrong kind. So, what happened after the video? The Jones man left with one of the suits. They were talking about lowering an animal into the hole, uh, a 
mouse or something. Like I said, there wasn't a lot of art to it. They were like kids. A couple of hours later, Jones is back with a man in shackles. Didn't look like he'd seen the sun much, and he had some bruises on his arms and neck, blood on his lip that was only just beginning to scab over. I've heard of FBI black sites around the country and elsewhere in the world, especially former Soviet republics. I wouldn't have guessed there would have been one here in West Texas near the New Mexico border. That was truly terrifying. How many men were there? Uh, seven or so. Eight with the new guy. He didn't say anything. He didn't seem to be all there. All of a sudden, there's a, a ton of rope and some sling contraption. They didn't really give him any guidance, no instructions. They just start lowering him into the hole. <clears throat> Can I ask you a question? Of course. Am I under arrest? Of course not. Am I free to go? No. What happens if I try to leave? You won't. When can I leave? Tell me about the man. What happened to him? They lowered him into the hole a couple thousand feet. No concern about the oxygen? I don't think they cared. But it wasn't the lack of oxygen that killed him. What did? He did. After we brought him back to the surface, he was... manic is the best word I could think of. But he looked... healthy. His lip wound was healed, his bruises were gone, he looked... he looked younger, even. They removed him from the sling, though his wrists were still shackled, and they peppered him with questions, but he couldn't hear them. He had the biggest smile on his face. I mean, it looked painful. He was free of the sling for maybe 20 seconds, and then he, he sort of came to. Shook his head like he was waking up from a dream. He looked at all those leering faces, elbowed Jones in the ribs, and bolted for the hole. Last I saw of him was the back of his head as he dropped it. In the midst of the confusion that followed his suicide, one of the suits broke away from the group. Just sat there, legs dangling over the hole. When the video was playing on the monitor, he had the most unusual reaction. He started crying. Shit, I found the screaming less upsetting. He just touched the crucifix on his neck and wept. Hadn't said or done much after. Jones saw him and called his name. Uh, Weston or Jessup or something like that. The man is weeping again and he's got his service pistol out. He doesn't acknowledge Jones, who's reminding him he has a family. He just shakes his head. After a half a minute of this, he looks up. Jones says something like, think of Cheryl. The man doesn't react to the name. He yanks on the crucifix of the necklace snaps, holds it in front of his face so it catches the sunlight. Jones is still talking to him and he's still not acknowledging. Finally, he says something like, it's a lie. He tossed the crucifix into the hole, put the pistol to his temple, and painted the grass with the contents of his skull. He keeled over, and the weight of his legs pulled his body into the hole. Are you suggesting there is a religious component to this? Is that what inspired him? 
probably, but that depends on the person. A very religious person might have a hard time coping, depending on what he saw or experienced. Can I, can I have like a cold Dr. Pepper? I'm sorry, man, I've blocked a lot of this, but I can still see him blowing his fucking brains out. Yes, it's probably time for a break. I do want to get back to what you saw on the monitor. We got away from it, and I think it's important to the story. I'll do my best. Are you ready to continue? Yes. So, with the suicide by gun, there are how many now? I wasn't counting, but I believe seven at that time. What happened next? What was Mr. Jones saying? I think he'd lost control over the situation. He stood by the brain matter and bits of skull. To that point, there had been no bodies. Can't really have an investigation without a body. Men are arguing. The two military officers drive away in a hurry. That leaves five of us. Jones, three suits, and me. I go back to the vehicle and just sit in the air conditioning. I'm a geologist, not a soldier. I'm not built for this. At least, not accustomed to it. Through the windshield, I see Jones sweeping his shoe over the remains, nudging them into the hole. It's uh, near evening then. I don't remember eating breakfast or lunch that day. I think I dozed a bit. The next thing I know, the suits are climbing into the vehicle. No one speaks on the ride back. We're all just lost in our own thoughts. At the house we eat, chili Mr. Guerra prepared. Still, not a lot of dialogue happening. Jones quietly asks each of the men for their service pistols. Says he's gonna lock them in Mr. Guerra's gun safe. There's not much resistance to the idea. I was on the porch by myself when Jones came outside. He wanted to know what I saw on the monitor. What I thought it, the anomaly was. I didn't have a way of explaining what I saw, but I could tell. I could tell it was all weighing on him. I asked him what he saw, and he didn't answer. He reached inside his jacket and removed his pistol. I realized he was the only person armed at the time. He turned the gun over, ran his fingers along the edges, then he holstered it again. We sat in silence for a while and then he went back inside. I, uh, I followed him in a few minutes later. The suits were huddled around the dining room table. They were uh, comparing their experiences, their perceptions. I think they were trying to convince themselves they didn't see what they saw. It was like when I first drove up, how they seemed to forget the hole as soon as they turned their back to it. And I don't think what they saw really mattered. It was the thing itself, you know. One suit just kept repeating, it's perfect. Over and over, he was giddy. Jones said something like, if it's perfect, then where are we? They decided to look at it again. I did not want to go. I didn't like knowing Jones had disarmed the other men while not sacrificing his own weapon. 
As they were preparing to leave, I locked myself inside one of the spare bedrooms and did not respond when Jones knocked. I don't know what happened out there, but I never saw them again. There wasn't a lot of information to be gleaned from the scene. Now, I'm going to ask you to explain, as best you can, what you saw and how that influences what you believe the anomaly is. It was uh, a glimpse, a fleeting glimpse of something else. To even say another reality, it misses the mark. Imagine how disorienting it would be if you, uh, if you plucked one of our ancestors, mankind, I mean, and dropped him in the middle of Times Square. I already feel like I'm failing at explaining it. I thought of an analogy, but it keeps growing the more you think about it. Oh, okay. You're making a sandwich. You gather all of the ingredients, the meat, the cheese, tomato, lettuce, bread, of course. And in the process of making the sandwich, the slicing of the tomatoes, the tearing of the lettuce into strips, there's, uh, there's debris left on the cutting board. Crumbs, a few flecks of meat and cheese, right? You slide these off the cutting board and into the trash can. I'm not following. It's not part of the sandwich. It's what's left behind when the sandwich was made. It just sits in the bottom of the trash bag. The meat rotting, the cheese drying, the bread molding. It attracts flies, and the flies lay their eggs in there in the moist darkness. The larvae feast on the putrescence, grow fat from it. It's chaos, this place, this darkness. It was never intended to grow life the way it did. It was a mistake, you see? You're saying... This hole, this thing, it's just a window. And our reality, small and insignificant, grew in the darkness at the bottom of the trash bag. It was never meant to be. The, the, the chaos, the, the brutality of nature, their mistakes. There is no God watching us. So the sun and all the planets, the universe. It's just the crumbs. It's the leftovers and, and the anomaly. The thing is like, it's like a pinhole through the trash bag. It's not supposed to be this way. We aren't supposed to suffer to have to kill to survive. We are the flies, and we will never escape. That's a lot to take in. But, Randall, I am happy. I enjoy my job. I love my family. Those men did too, until they saw it. Until they saw what could have been, but never was. Some saw different things. That's what the screaming was, I think. It's like it's like when you're doing the dishes and, and, and pull the plug and all the nasty stuff collects in the drain. I think the screams were our stuff at the bottom of the drain. If you'd seen it, you'd know. It's been three days since I was there. And it's all I fucking think about. The other place... I know why the men jumped. They were hoping to reach it. But we will never reach it.
What makes you say that? Are they trying? The men in the field right now? Are they trying to reach it? What if they are? <sighs> I'm just a geologist. I can only guess. What would you do if the thing that you threw away, the, that was festering in the darkness and all of its chaos and suffering and disease, showed up at your doorstep and wanted in? I don't know, Randall. You would ensure it never happened again. By doing what? I guess we'll find out. young, having medical problems you don't understand can be scary. The worse they get, the more you might be inclined to withdraw from society, to hide them. If you can't explain them, why should anyone else? But in this tale, shared with us by author Shelton Weech, it's lucky that there's a good friend to see our sick patient through his troubles. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Matthew Bradford. So keep a close eye out for symptoms. Watch for any changes in those around you. Because blink and you'll miss it. But you need to be aware when their pupils are dilated. I could tell that Ben was having trouble with his eyes. He squinted at the office computer, rubbed his temples, spent minutes at a time tilting his head back with his eyes closed. When his customers called, he talked with his nose pressed so close to the screen that he ran the risk of smudging it. His concern for his vision grew to the point that his palms left sweaty pools wherever they touched, and people were starting to talk. Ben and I were friends. We'd met at work a couple years previous and had quickly bonded over a shared love for heist movies and nachos. We were comfortable enough with each other that one day in the break room, I suggested that he go see an optometrist. He shrugged it off, said that he'd opted out of vision insurance that year and couldn't afford it. But Ben's problems persisted. He started calling in sick. I wondered if his job would be at risk. He had a set client list, after all, and it was a difficult thing to have someone fill in while he was out. Through it all, Ben's health seemed to take a dive. His face grew pale, like bread mold. The way he rubbed at his temples, he could have worn holes into them with his thumbs. His cheekbones were growing more prominent, and his clothes hanged off of him more loosely. His appetite clearly a casualty of his headaches. Before all this, he had been a fit guy in his late 20s. So, it grieved me to see him waste away like this. I raised the possibility of asking folks around the office to pitch in for an eye exam, but Ben waved me off. No charity, he said. And that was that. A couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, Ben was out most of the week. By Thursday, I was concerned enough that I gave him a call to check in with him. When he didn't answer, I stopped by his place after work. He lived in a brick building in the older part of town. 
his apartment situated above a music and clothing store aimed at the EDM crowd, a place that most hours of the day sent a deep electronic bass beat thrumming through Ben's floor. There was a steady drizzle of rain that felt like walking through a mucus membrane, so I was glad to get inside. Upstairs I felt the beat of the music store pulse into the hallway around me as I rang Ben's buzzer. There was no response, nor to a second buzz. I normally wouldn't have done what it followed, but I was worried about my friend, so I gave the door a try. It was unlocked. I'd only been to Ben's apartment a couple of times. We spent more time in movie theaters, Mexican restaurants, and watching old movies on my home theater system, which was better than the 40-inch Sanyo that Ben had. Ben's apartment was small but comfortable, with enough windows to keep the place easily bright during the day, but difficult to darken at night. Even with the shades pulled, the streetlights were practically at the same level as the windows, and their cold, orange light snuck its way inside. It was darker than that now. Ben had duct-taped flannel sheets to the corners of the window frame. None of his lamps or lights were on. As my own eyes adjusted to the dim, I made out the pile of dirty dishes in the sink, the dirty clothing on the floor. The place smelled like the daycare center my mother used to work at. The combination of overripe fruit baby powder and vomit. Ben? I was both relieved and worried to hear a wordless response from a pile of blankets on the bed that shrouded Ben from neck to toe. His head was uncovered. He was also unshaven, and from the smell of it unshowered for days. He made room for me and I sat down, trying to breathe through my mouth. Everyone is worried about you. Are you okay? My golden sick. Yeah, I know. Are you okay? He sat there, his face in shadow. His voice had a rough, unused sound, like an old motor. I probably won't be back anytime soon. There was a growing hollow at the bottom of my ribcage. Do you want to talk about it? He didn't say anything for a long time. Let the silence of the room and the queasiness of the streetlight from outside sift its way through the dust that hung in the air. And then he sniffed and started talking. Ben had meant it when he told me he was going to try to live with his headaches. But it was getting harder to see every day, he said. And the headaches were getting worse. He started worrying that they were going to lose him his job, so he decided to find a cheap eye doctor and just go. He would put the visit on a credit card and deal with paying it off later. Trick was, first, he needed to find a doctor. He made some calls, looked for places that had specials for new customers, but nothing was the right price. Then last Friday, Ben saw the office. It was about a block from his apartment, close to the bus stop. You probably walked by it yourself when you came here. He saw it on his way home from work that day. The place had one of those coffee shop blackboards outside, pink and yellow scrawlings glowing on its surface. At first, Ben couldn't make the writing out, like it was written in some foreign alphabet, Cyrillic or something, and he almost walked past. But the bright colors, almost mystical, seemed to call to him, and he looked again. Eye trouble? No insurance? Five dollar exam for new customers. Walk-ins welcome. Dr. Karen Llewellyn, OD. Five bucks, Ben thought. Seemed too good to be true. But when he looked at that sign, he realized he was squinting. The letters, which had seemed foreign at first, were blurring, and his head was pounding, and he decided not to miss the opportunity. His parents were prayersy people, he told me, always talking about asking God for this or that. But Ben had never really gotten much into it. 
That moment, though, seemed like an answer to all the prayers he hadn't felt like offering. Well, turns out it might have been an answer to prayers, but not mine. And definitely not prayers to the god my parents taught me about. That wasn't clear to him then, though. Right then, he just needed to get inside. Maybe get himself some cheap glasses that could help with the headaches. So, like the sign suggested, he walked in. It was cold, like walking into a refrigerator. It smelled kind of like a fridge, too. Like the smell of the leftover Chinese food you got rid of last week, still lingering long after the Tupperware had been put in the dishwasher. It looked like an optometrist's office. Framed posters of happy people smiling at the camera. Bright eyes wide through the lens of their new glasses. Racks of those same glasses lining the walls. The light was fluorescent, almost too bright. One of the lights was flickering. They ushered Ben right in. He filled out a quick piece of paper that asked for his information. The normal stuff, age, medical history, and there, two-thirds of the way down the form, religion. It was a little weird, but at the moment he wasn't about to question a $5 eye exam. So he filled the thing out, writing agnostic in block letters and hoping it didn't lead to some kind of discussion later. And the receptionist, a big friendly John Goodman type, showed him to the back, sat him down in the big chair, the one connected to all the machines and devices for the exam. Then he left. It was weird. At a quick glance, everything seemed normal. Just about what you'd expect from an optometrist's office. Except for little details. The fluorescent lights were just barely too bright, and one was flickering rhythmically. The chair he was sitting in looked like a normal chair, but there were Velcro straps on the arms. The eye chart was too far away to see clearly, but he could have sworn some of the letters weren't letters at all. They looked like Viking-style runes he remembered from a National Geographic special he'd watched a few years back. Just about the only normal thing was the bossa nova elevator music coming out of the tiny speakers in the ceiling. Then the doctor came in. Dr. Karen Llewellyn. She was short and thin. Too thin, Ben thought. Her hair was pulled back into a ponytail. It looked like the act pulled the rest of the skin on her forehead with it, permanently arching her eyebrows. Her eyes were almost too small for her slender face. She looked tired, but intense. Ben felt like she was looking right into him. She was friendly and efficient. She ran through the regular tests and had Ben read the chart. He must have been wrong about those things when he thought they were runes. They looked like regular numbers now. She went through the sample lenses. Which is clear, number one or number two. And good God, he could see the letters clearly enough through some of them. He had to blink some tears away to keep his eyes clear. He didn't want to make things all blurry right when they were the clearest they'd been in years. The doctor asked if he was driving home, said she wanted to dilate his eyes to check the health of his retinas. It had been a good few years since he'd had an exam, but he remembered this from before. He was only a block from home, and he'd been planning on walking anyway, so he figured what the hell, no harm there. She told him that he would need to avoid bright lights, TV, computer screens for a few hours after the dilation, because dilated eyes are especially sensitive to light. She asked him to put his hands on the armrests. He did as she directed, and she reached down to strap his arms using the Velcro straps he'd seen earlier. She was still smiling, but there was something more forceful now, less gentle. She pulled the straps tight. Ben must have looked scared because she patted his shoulder, said it was going to be fine. She pushed his head back, she was stronger than she looked. Instinct kicked in, 
his eyes closing tight to resist the eye drops. She practically had to peel his eyelids back to keep them open while she dropped the liquid in that started them dilating. She said it might sting, and that's about when he started to panic, but it was too late. She was too strong, and he was strapped in. Next thing he knew, cold, stinging acid droplets splashed into his eyes, burning trails down his cheeks. She left him there, closed the door while he shouted and screamed and begged. Those straps were the strongest Velcro he'd ever experienced. Like Velcro and Superglue got together and, well, stayed together. He bucked and kicked, squirmed and yelled himself hoarse, but no matter how hard he pulled, he couldn't get himself out of that chair. I'm not sure how long it was strapped there. Five minutes, fifteen, an hour. Time is squishy when stuff like that happens. Hours can fly by. Minutes can scrape along like snails on a chalkboard. And the whole time it was happening, there was this pounding in my head that I swear was was rhythmic. Like a bunch of people banging on bass drums. And the music from the speakers, it's, it's hard to remember, but I swear it changed. It wasn't jazzy anymore. I'm pretty sure it was a men's choir singing a cappella in another language. And then I lost track of everything. Ben didn't remember getting out of the chair, paying his bill, leaving the place, going home, lying down. The next thing he was aware of was the red light of his clock radio reading just after four in the morning. His head still pounded, but more softly. Not a bass drum, but still percussive, persistent. The skin around his eyes itched, and when he scratched at it, the itch exploded into solar flares on his face, so he did what he could to avoid touching it. As he lay there, nursing his pain and discomfort in the dark, he began to notice that his sight was clearer. For the first time in months, maybe years, things were sharp. His eyes burned, his face itched, but things weren't blurry like he was used to. He pulled a book off the shelf just to be sure he didn't have to squint to see the letters. He was so happy that he started to cry, but that didn't last long. The tears came into contact with the skin around his eyes and felt like fire on his face, curbing his high. Alternating thoughts between what movies he could watch first and how he could sue that maniac optometrist for all she was worth, he got up and went to a mirror to see what they had done to him. His vision was better, sharper, but he wanted to get a good look at his face. So he turned on the light. It felt like someone ran a string of floss into his eye, through the back of his head, and started scraping back and forth. He recoiled from the pain, switched off the light and crumpled to the ground, head in hands. The pounding in his skull had already set off again, and it took several minutes to gather himself back together for another try. Once the pain had lessened, it never really went away after that but was more manageable, he got back to his feet. He'd learned his lesson about light, but he needed to see his face. Something was wrong with his eyes, with his head. He went into the next room and turned on a lamp with his eyes closed, made his way back to the bathroom and left the door open, and used the little bit of light that filtered in from the other room to look at himself in the mirror. You you know about scuba diving. Like, when you go down deep enough, the water pressure on your mask can create a crazy amount of suction on your face, cause capillaries to burst, even cause your eyes to bug out temporarily. It can do serious damage if you're not careful. I, I I saw a picture of a guy once. His mask suctioned his face so hard that afterwards he looked like a gecko with a serious mask-shaped sunburn around his eyes. That's kind of what my face looked like, minus the bug eyes. 
My skin was red, raw, hurt to touch it, even softly. And my eyes, they were still dilated. He told me what he saw when he looked at himself in the mirror. The light was low, but he could see clearly enough. There was almost no color to his irises, which were being overtaken by the encroaching blackness of the pupils. He thought he was having some kind of allergic reaction to the solution the doctor used, and wondered if he should go to the hospital. But he was also thirsty, and the pain wasn't bad at the moment, so he went to the kitchen first for some water. Maybe the problem was dehydration, he thought. Water could help. As he reached for a glass in the kitchen, he saw the notes sitting on the kitchen counter. It was dark, but even with his eyes in the shape they were, he could still make it out, as if it were day. We took you home. The pain will last a day or two. Then you will see clearly. Dr. Llewellyn. They took him home? They had been inside his apartment? What did she mean by, then you will see clearly? She hadn't given him any glasses or even any prescription. But maybe, he thought maybe she'd done something else. Something to fix his vision entirely. So, yeah, I probably should have gone to the hospital or to the police, or both. It may have occurred to me that she might have been wrong or flat out lying, but I ignored those instincts. Man, I was so desperate. And in spite of how much pain I was in, I was hopeful that the pain, all the pain, would be over soon. That had been Saturday. The pain wasn't gone by Sunday. If anything, it was worse. The beating in Ben's head was more forceful, insistent, and his eyes seemed like they were even more sensitive to light than they had been a day ago. On Sunday night, he finally got up the courage to turn on a little light, push through the pain, check things out again. The rawness around his skin was starting to heal, so that was good at least. But the eyes themselves? He wasn't sure. But it seemed like there was less color in the iris than there had been before. Like the little black hole of his dilated pupil was expanding, consuming everything around it. He tried looking up Dr. Llewellyn online to see about giving her a call, but none of his searches turned up anything. He considered going outside, walking down the street to her office, but when he thought of going outside, dealing with the lights, even the street lights in the evening, the thought made him dizzy, and he decided to give it one more day. She said the pain would last a day or two, so he'd give her at least that. On Monday, the pain was still bad enough that Ben called out sick, and when he looked at his eyes again, there wasn't any color left. Completely gone, just white eyes with a black pupil like a cartoon character. His eyes were still dilating, and they weren't showing any signs of stopping. It was time to go to the emergency room, to have his eyes checked out by a professional. Ben put on a coat, started to head out the door. The minute he put his hand on the doorknob, the headaches, the beating pain intensified. Razor wire ran back and forth across his nerves, and the next thing he was aware of was waking on the floor. Nose bloody, chin covered in dried vomit. He checked his phone and saw it was two hours later. If he couldn't get himself to the hospital, he would need an ambulance. So he went to dial 911, but as he did, the same pain began to rise again. He dropped the phone, and the pain stopped. He went to pick up the phone to try again, but as soon as he reached for it, he felt the pain begin to rise, like a dog raising its hackles. He pulled his hand back and the pain subsided. No ambulance then, he thought, feeling sick and despairing. He couldn't watch TV, couldn't read, couldn't really do anything, so he sat, head in hands, trying to think about other things. 
He ate and drank, but just barely. Occasionally, he thought he saw shadows flit through the apartment. They appeared here and there just out of focus, never for more than an instant. He figured they were products of the pain, hallucinations, something. Every few hours, he thought of trying to pick up the phone again and call for help. But each time he did, the pain flared and didn't go away until he banished the thought. On Tuesday night, the shadows reappeared. The ones he thought he'd seen zipping through the apartment, but this time, they didn't go away. He realized they weren't in the apartment. They were in his eyes. They were like the floaters in your vision. Those pieces of retina you have to blink away. Except these ones were moving, like fish. He couldn't see any real shapes. They were too blurry for that, but they were there. Ben looked in the mirror again and saw something new this time. Not only could he see little flecks of things moving around, but he could see them because there was light inside his eyes. Dim light from within, barely lighting up his pupils, which were bigger than ever. The pain let him look for only half a second, but he thought he could see something through the pupil, in the back of his eye. A tiny, glowing sliver of burnt orange. He didn't know how he could see it so clearly, but it was there. And he knew what it was. A door. You will be our gateway. Something whispered. The pain flared and he blacked out again. The doctor was right, though. He could see clearly now. Through his story, Ben kept his head low, and in the dim light. No matter how I angled my own head, I couldn't see the state of his eyes. The smell of the room, the claustrophobic pressure on me right then, had the effect of a ghost story around a campfire. It was imaginary. It had to be. But it didn't feel imaginary. And I haven't had the guts to look again since Tuesday night. I'm terrified of what I'll see. The shadows in my vision are still there. A little more in focus every time. And the shapes aren't really like fish. More like, I don't know, lobsters maybe? Something with claws. I can see the claws. He paused, his voice growing thick. I can feel the claws. You need a doctor. These things won't let that happen. The minute I try to step outside or call for help, they set off the pain again. Hell, even thinking about it sets off the drums beating. Right now, even. He put his hand to his temple. Let me see. There was a drawn-out pause, the sound of a slow exhaling coming from Ben. Yeah, don't... I do. Let me help you. Another pause. And then he nodded. Turn on the light in the bathroom. That should be bright enough for you to see, but still far away for it not to hurt. I nodded and went to turn on the light. An old bulb that glowed a soft yellow. Returning to where Ben sat on his bed, I settled beside him and looked at his face. His eyes were still downcast, shadowed. The lamp next to the bed was dark, the clock radio next to it flashing 12 o'clock. After another moment of pained silence, he turned his face up and met my gaze. He frowned, and I knew I'd let out an audible reaction, involuntary. But his eyes, I'd never seen anything like it. The pupils were the size of dimes, black holes that almost completely occluded any white. Keep looking. I didn't know what I was looking for, but even in the dim light, I began to see it. A tiny reflection of the bathroom light in Ben's eyes. No, not a reflection. This light was a different color, more red than yellow, and flickering, but rhythmic, 
like a fire with a pulse beating in the back of both Ben's eyes. Something swam in front of the pulsing light. Inside one of Ben's eyes. I recoiled. A bug of some kind? It was silhouetted in there, difficult to make out. I know. There's something in there. A, a parasite or something. Not parasites. This is insane. You need to get to a hospital. My car is parked outside. No. And we can put a blindfold or something on you to keep out the light. He was standing now, his face pained. I told you this thing that's happening. What's ever behind it, it won't let me get help. I'm sorry about this. Something in his voice made me look up at him. Just in time to see him ram the butt end of a lamp into my face. Throbbing headache. Neck and back protesting separately. My arms numb and trapped behind me. And out of the darkness, the sound of Ben's voice pulling me from the fog. I'm so, so sorry. It speaks to me now. It tells me things. Mostly it's in this weird language that I, I don't understand. But sometimes it's clear. I can't let you leave, it says. Not until it comes through the door. I was on the floor. Most of me was awake, but my tongue still seemed to be sleeping in. So I just stared. I had enough of my senses back to get a handle on my position. Ben had tied my hands behind my back. The bastard had actually tied me up and somehow had strapped my arms to the leg of the bed in a way that kept me lying on my side. My hands and arms were completely numb. My spine seemed like it had been twisted into pretzels and my head rang with lightning anytime I tried to move it. My lips were sticky and tasted like blood and somehow, more than anything else, I was thirsty. Like I'd spent the last 40 days and nights lost in the desert. Ben paced around the apartment, talking to me in a way that felt like he wasn't talking to me. I know you don't really believe me. I wish you did. I don't want any of this. This isn't my fault, you know. Whatever Dr. Llewellyn did to me is somehow letting this thing, these things, I'm pretty sure there's lots of them, thousands even, they're coming here through me somehow. And it terrifies me because I'm pretty sure when it happens, it's going to kill me and well, probably lots of other people. And maybe somehow that will be my fault because I didn't do anything to stop it. Ben. His name alone was hard to get out. It felt like I was talking through a mouthful of cotton. I didn't mean for this to happen to you, but if I try to do anything other than what it tells me, it hurts. It hurts so much. Need a doctor. I wasn't entirely sure if I was saying that Ben needed a doctor, or I did. It was hard to focus. He sat on the floor next to me. If I'd been nimbler, stronger, I might have found a way to kick him somehow. Knock him over, something, but the thought of bending my body in any way was out of the question. Ben's eyes were wide with worry, and he was close enough that I could see those black holes where his irises used to be. Had they grown since the last time I looked? There was almost no white left in his eyes. How long had I been unconscious? I've got to stop this. The words made him wince, one of his hands going to his head as if he'd just been struck by something. He cocked his head like he was listening to distant music, and he cowed, shoulders slumping, defeated. The mushiness in my head was starting to go away, though the pain was still there. I was getting angry and started pulling against the bonds. Had he tied me up with bed sheets? He seriously didn't think that would hold me for long, did he? My struggle pulled him out of his funk, just enough for him to look at me. Were his pupils even bigger now? Couldn't be, I thought. 
Not this quickly. Ben, you have to stop this. Whatever's going on here, it has to stop. He pursed his lips, closed his eyes. He wasn't listening to me. He was listening to something else. It's going to happen soon. What's going to happen? The door. It's going to open. You keep saying that. Who's coming? The doctor? Ben shook his head and closed his eyes tight, as if he could stop this all with the force of his eyelids alone. A pair of tears escaped the blockade and crawled down his cheeks. Ben, please, untie me. We need to get you out. It's too late for that. It's too late for a lot of things. There was a long pause as he thought. His eyes closed. His mouth worked, as if it was chewing on something. Finally, Ben opened his eyes, set his jaw. But I can still make it rain. He stood up and nearly bowled over, crying out in pain. Something was hurting him, but he was forcing his way through it. He steadied himself, walked to the small open kitchen, fumbled around in the drawer and pulled out a steak knife. My heart skipped a beat, worried that he was going to come over and use it on me, but he instead went into the bathroom. Eyes closed, he turned off the light and closed the door. There were about 30 seconds of silence, and then, from behind the closed door, Ben let out a scream. Primal, terrified, anguished, but most of all, angry. I strained against the sheets that tied me. My arms were dead to all feeling, but I could still move them. I twisted my body, gritting my teeth against the streaks of pain that ran in my head down my spine, and I managed to put myself in a better position, getting some leverage against the bed. I pulled harder against the sheets. Ben screamed again. There was a thickness to the scream, like an infant crying to itself to the point of gagging. And there was another sound. Squelching. Sharp and wet. And I didn't want to think about what he was doing with the knife in there. I had to help him. Stop him. I twisted myself more, got my legs underneath me, and I lifted with all the strength I had left. I managed to get enough thrust against the corner of the bed to which I'd been tied, and I lifted the corner off of the floor. The movement was enough. The sheets gave way, and my arms fell free. No longer tied to me, the bed crashed down, bed legs scraping through my jeans along my calf and along my Achilles tendon, painful enough that I lost balance. I reached out to steady myself, but my arms, still numb, couldn't support any weight, and I crumpled to the floor. The pain in my head spiked. I might have blacked out. Ben's clock still blinked 12 o'clock. There were no more screams from in the bathroom. I finally managed to stand. Darts of feeling ran in painful glimmers across my arms and hands. It was difficult to concentrate, but I forced myself to ignore the sensation. Got back to my feet, went to the bathroom, reached for the light. I briefly remembered that Ben was sensitive to light, but I knew that I couldn't help him if I couldn't see what was happening. I flipped the switch. Ben sat in the bathtub, jaw slack, chest heaving. Streams of red ran down his cheeks from the glistening, meaty holes where his eyes used to be. The knife lay on the bathroom floor among red raindrops. Not far from the knife lay Ben's eyes, mostly undamaged, even after having been cut from his face. They were still noticeably eye-shaped, ended in stringy stalks, like thin, 
pink asparagus. I reached into my pocket to grab my phone, prepared to call 911, when I heard Ben's heartbroken voice. It didn't work. On the floor, Ben's eyes, no longer connected to anything that I could see, twitched. I looked closer and felt my stomach clench. The pupils, that ever-encroaching blackness, continued to dilate. They covered nearly half of the orb, an entire hemisphere of darkness. Some thin membrane kept the eye spherical. One of the eyes twitched again. I stared at it, transfixed. A claw, or talon of some kind, thin and sharp, was reaching through the blackness inside the eye and poking at the membrane. There was a pop and a gurgling hiss as the claw breached the tissue. It scraped on the bathroom linoleum for a moment, then withdrew back inside the eye. At that point, the blackness began to pour out of the eye through the breached membrane onto the bathroom floor, spreading like an oil spill. Except this oil spill wasn't oil. It was space. And in that ever-growing space, I could now see clearly the outline of a door, already cracked and opening wider. And something, some things on the other side, clawing and hungry and ready to feast. Meeting the new neighbors, always a gamble. Are they going to be quiet, calm sorts who keep to themselves? Loud, raucous partygoers? Busybodies? Sometimes it can be easy to predict at a glance. But in this tale, shared with us by author J.R. Stinson, we welcome some newcomers to the neighborhood who are a little harder to pin down. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Mary Murphy, and Peter Lewis. So don't judge them on their fashion sense. People can wear what they want. Don't judge them by their silence. Some people are just shy. Rather, judge them on whether the patriarch has a firm handshake. Marge! Marge! Come check this out! Somebody's moving into the house at the end of the street again. My wife entered the living room. Really? I thought that young couple moved in just a few weeks ago. Those 20-somethings who looked like extras in a Cindy Lauper video? Yeah, they did. You didn't see them move out, did you? I don't think so. It was like they skipped town in the middle of the night or something. Weird. What do these new people look like? Marge has never been anything short of a sweetheart. Cruelty and malice were as alien to her as a mountain is to North Dakota. But one of her very few guilty pleasures is to try and figure someone out just by looking at them. It wasn't like she was looking for reasons to hate them. It was just some sort of game she played with herself. She liked pretending to be a kind of suburban detective, 
a Sherlock light, as I've often called her. And in all honesty, I'd be a liar if I said she wasn't surprisingly accurate most times. In fact, I still remember when she accurately predicted the neighbor across the alley preferred Pepsi over Coke. She said it was the way he carried himself as he mowed the lawn, but after weeks of pressing her, I had to accept that she would never reveal her secret. I kept my nose glued to the glass. It looks like a family. Maybe early 40s? With two kids. How tall is the husband? What? Why? And how am I supposed to know that? I don't know. Just use your eyes. I made a playfully sarcastic display of pushing my face right up against the window and opening my eyes as wide as possible. Oh, okay, now I see. Oh yeah, he's tall, really tall, like 6'4 at least. And he's handsome too. Look at that marble jawline. Really? No, not really. (laughs) Do I need to be concerned about you and this guy? Marge punched my arm with her bony knuckles. Don't even joke about that. Now come on. Move over. Let the professional do her work. I shuffled out of the way and gave Marge a turn at the window. She stared intently for a while, studying the new neighbors like a house cat watching birds flit about the front yard. Hmm. What? Nothing, really. It's just that their clothes are kind of funny, don't you think? Look at that man's clothing. He's dressed like my father. I squeezed my head back into view of the window for a second glance, and sure enough, the husband had a dramatically outdated wardrobe. It was complete with beige pleated trousers resting high on the hips, an equally drab green wool cardigan over a button-down shirt, and a pair of thin, round, wire-framed glasses pressed firmly against his nose. Yeah, you're right. He is. And it looks like the whole family is into the retro thing, actually. The children, a girl and a boy, roughly ages 10 and 13 respectively, were both wearing clothes that looked straight out of a mid-20th century Eaton's catalog. And the wife was no different. Also, take a look at the car they're driving. Parked in front of the house was a black 53 Mercury station wagon in pristine condition. It looked like it just came fresh from the factory. I let out a low whistle. That car in that kind of condition isn't cheap. I gotta go talk to this guy and figure out if that's all original. Cause that is one hell of a beauty. I left Marge to her observations and went to put on my shoes. As I placed my hand on the doorknob, she spoke in a tense, almost hissing voice. Chris, wait. Marge turned to look at me. I stood in the entrance, half stunned by her sudden intensity. Something's off. The family, there's something weird about them. Yeah, they're a little eccentric, sure, but... It's not that. It's their eyes and the way they move. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it just doesn't look like they have anything in their eyes. I haven't even seen them look at each other yet. And their movements are stiff and awkward. They kind of remind me of those... things. You know, the dolls with the strings? 
Marge made a gesture with her hands that looked like she was playing an invisible keyboard. Marionette puppets? She snapped her fingers. That's it. Marionettes. Okay, well, you may have been right about Lewis and his Pepsi, David and his reality shows, and Michelle being an ex-smoker, but what are you trying to say about these people? I... I don't even know. They're just strange. Don't go out there just yet. Please? It doesn't feel right. Not sure what to do with Marge's insinuations, I let out an insincere chuckle. (laughs) I'm sure they're just tired and frustrated from the move. You know how exhausting that can be. Maybe a friendly neighbor is exactly what they need right now. Plus, I have an ulterior motive. If this guy's good with cars, we need some work done on ours. Maybe we can sucker him into helping by lending a hand right now. Marge watched nervously as I went out the door. I stepped onto the front porch and immediately felt the warmth of an early September afternoon, the final breaths of a dying summer. It seemed strange to me that someone would be wearing a wool sweater on such a gorgeous day, but then again, some people have poor circulation and things of that nature. And who was I to judge? I waved and hollered at the gentleman removing boxes out of the back of the old station wagon. The man stopped what he was doing and stood still for a brief moment. Then he turned to look at me with a stiff and ragged motion. Hey there, how's it going? Um, the name's Chris, Chris Fletcher. So it looks like we're going to be neighbors, huh? Glad to have you in the neighborhood. I extended an open hand. The guy seemed like a traditional kind of fellow, so I thought it best to greet him in a traditional fashion. Getting ready to squeeze his palm like a wet sponge in order to show my assertiveness. He twisted his head downwards and stared at my hand through his round glasses, as if he were trying to figure out what to do with the appendage before him. So do you need any help with... Before I could finish, he languidly stuck his hand out to meet mine. I clasped it firmly, expecting a powerful grip, but instead I wrapped my fingers around something limp, delicate, and cold. Extremely cold. Wow, you you have pretty cold hands there. My voice trailed off, too distracted by the freezing grip to continue the introduction. The man spoke in a wispy voice that slithered between his teeth like smoke seeping out from underneath a closed door. Simmons, Dietrich. As he said this, he raised his head and met my eyes. Marge was right. I swear to God, the man did not have any color in his eyes. Just black and white. No iris. Like coals in a dead fire. His thin mouth worked itself into a crooked smile and I couldn't shake the feeling that he was taking great care to keep it shut. Suddenly, his icy grip on my hand tightened tenfold. I tried to pull away, but the harder I pulled, the more his hand cinched, like a python with its prey. The ground began to heave and everything around me started spinning. The sound of white noise gradually filled the air while the taste of copper flooded my mouth. The static grew to a deafening level and my vision began to fade. Then, 
As quickly as he crushed my hand, he let go, and I crumpled onto the pavement. Thank you, Chris Fletcher. As I massaged my aching hand, I pried open my eyes and looked over to see his wife and children standing near the front entrance of their house. They all waved in perfect synchronicity at me, each one having that same crooked, deceptive smile and the same vacuous eyes. The wife grabbed the little girl by the hand and the three of them walked directly through the closed, solid oak door as if it weren't even there. They simply dissolved through it. My blood instantly went cold and my body began to vibrate with adrenaline. I launched myself off the ground and started running back to the house, but my knees were still weak and I collapsed again mid-stride. Behind me, I could hear Dietrich Simmons start laughing openly. I turned to look at him and I finally understood why he wouldn't open his mouth. Dozens of oily, tentacle-like appendages started to slither out from his throat and flail about frantically like hungry leeches. Scrambling to get my feet back under me, I darted back for the house once more. Marge had watched the entire exchange from the window. If she had one particular jewel in her crown of virtues, it was that she was astute and knew how to act under pressure. By the time I made it to the sidewalk, she was already outside and unlocking the car doors. March, get in the car! <sighs> we both flung ourselves into the car seats. I knew it. I knew something was wrong. What the hell is that thing? I don't... Jesus Christ, I don't know, March. Whatever that was, it wasn't a fucking man. I could tell you that much. I looked down at my right hand and struggled to understand what I was seeing. The area that Simmons had gripped was turning a dark purple, almost black and shriveling up. There was now a deep indentation in the shape of a handprint all around my palm, the back of my hand and partially on my wrist, and it was both frigid and numb. I cradled my hand. Just drive! As Marge spun the tires and rocketed the car down the suburban road, I looked in the side view mirror, and there Dietrich Simmons was, standing in the middle of the pavement, still laughing hysterically. And although the mirror was bouncing around violently as the car quickly gained speed, I could see more people coming out to join him. Among the growing crowd was the young couple who had lived there previously, and every single one of them had those dark appendages slithering out of their mouths. They continued to laugh as their figures shrunk with each meter Marge put between us and them. It's been just over seven years since that incident, and my hand still has Simmons' imprint on it. It's completely numb most of the time, but... Every now and then, for no discernible reason, I'll feel an icy sting where he grasped me. My nightmares have become few and far between, but it's not uncommon for me to shriek and laugh in the middle of the night. For a while, 
Marge had to sleep in another room because it was so bad. Ultimately, we found a new place and left most of everything we owned in that house, save for a few important documents and sentimental artifacts picked up by friends or family. We just couldn't bring ourselves to go near that house at the end of the street ever again. I don't know if my sanity could survive another encounter with whatever it was that called itself Dietrich Simmons. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Of course, we know what they are, don't we? They're balls of gas burning millions of miles away. But we haven't always known. And in this tale, shared with us by author Harold Neil Riggs, we meet someone who had a friend that wasn't convinced we've got it right even now. Performing this tale is Kristen DiMercurio. So when you gaze admiringly into space, peering at those balls of light, remember that even the scientific explanation is that they're on fire. And if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. And maybe there's another reason for not staring directly at the sun. Maybe the stars are watching. I knew a woman once who lived in an apartment building in the loudest, noisiest neighborhood, in the heart of the city. She was a witch, or something like one. By her own admission, of course. To me, she always seemed eccentric. I forget how we met. Come to think of it, I've forgotten many things about her. The cadence of her speech, the circumstances of our acquaintance, the color of her eyes, her name... But I don't think I should ever forget her entirely. She was too vivid for that, almost as though she tried to stain the lives of those she touched so she could never be cleaned away entirely. Her apartment was a cramped, dingy thing, cluttered and piled high with books and diagrams and stones and idols and incense. She had the walls draped in veils of cloth and the gauzy curtains hung heavy in sheet after sheet over her windows. There were so many candles... I half expected her to burn down the whole building. Once I asked her how she could get away with so many flames, surprised that the smell and the smoke hadn't set off the alarms, if not in her rooms, then in those surrounding them. Magic, she had said, chuckling. I remember that laugh. She didn't laugh often. She entertained guests, or perhaps customers, at odd hours. They came to her for advice, and she would make readings. She had crystals hewn in oblong spheres, her unhatching eggs, as she called them. She said they had potential futures in them, futures that would never hatch, but by peering into the contours and bendy refractions, she could see things that would never be, and from what would never be, 
she could make guesses about what could be. She would read cards, but only cards of her own making. I never knew how many were in her decks. She was always adding, subtracting, or even merging cards. The Witch in Flames was divided, and it became the Burning Rose and the Web Weaver. The Ocean Soul was torn to pieces, replaced by the Rising Deep, under which were the Siren of Storms, the Shellacere, the Drowning Dark, and the Fulgent Abyss. Growth of thorns, flowers, and rot flitted through her hand time and time again, and she hacked apart the cards of the Suicide King, the dust of graves, the gnawing worms, and the unmoving egg, again and again, to create a mosaic of dead things. Once she painted a card of dull and dark stars, bleeding away into an endless night, and she fed the entire deck to her incense candles. She painted all her cards, all the figures, and none were pleasant to look upon. She was afraid of stars. Once, after too much wine, she told me something of her past, that she had spent her life running, first from what was real, and then from what she found in the unreal. She used to have a different life, with a different name, in a different part of the country. She left that all behind, burned her old life, and left the ashes to cover her path. But something had seen her, something far above and she swore its eyes yet lingered over her. So she came to the city, where the light and the noise and the motion drowned out the skies and bleached the night because that way the stars couldn't see her. And it worked for a while. We were friends. I'm almost certain of that. Thinking about her is like trying to peer into a hole. You can't see what isn't there, but you can judge what it was by the impression it left behind. And chasing those memories, those sleepless nights and hazy days, I can find my way to little fragments. I remember her cluttered apartment, the scent of spices and incense and sweat, colors and lights and fervent whispered conversation in the middle of the night. I can recall sitting with her in the late hours of an empty night. I can't recall her words but I do remember her message. I remember smelling the wine on her breath, but there was not nearly enough to explain the way she was thinking. She had seen something, or maybe she saw the sort of nothing that bespoke something hidden, but she was certain that whatever she had seen had seen her as well. She said cats were staring at her, that they could see the mark laid upon her in her dreams. She said bats were scared of her, that they avoided her apartment block, she told me that moths were drawn to the light of her doom and would beat themselves senseless against her windows in the summer months. The light of her apartment flickered as she spoke, and she shivered while wrapped up in brightly colored blankets and sheets. It was spring. I remember thinking it strange that such dark notions would come as the nights were shrinking. I remember being nervous when I left her apartment. I remember looking up, seeing the moon, small and distant, partially obscured by the clouds. How similar it seemed to her unhatching eggs and their stillborn futures. I remember shivering in the night. A mist rolled into the city the next night. It was unseasonably chilly. The mists wreathed the city, dulling light and strangling buildings, slowing traffic to a crawl and muting all the sounds of life. But the morning sun didn't burn it away. Instead, it seemed to roil, swirling in eddies and currents. 
From a high apartment, it seemed almost like a river or lake, one with undulating, scaled things swimming just beneath the surface. My friend was distraught. She stuffed sheets and blankets around her windowsill and under her door. When I visited, she was poring over her crystals, her painted cards, her plates of scattered leaves interspersed with feeder grubs, and her collection of erratically graven bone dice. The mists were obscuring the futures, she told me. The stars would be making their move soon. The mists lingered through the night, until they began to shine and shimmer. A cold snap struck the area, and where the mists had smothered the trees, streets, and buildings in a damp embrace the previous night, the cold then entombed it all in ice. Most of the trees had been budding. Many wouldn't survive the frost. The moisture in the air vanished, petrified into crystal shards that collapsed onto the ground and pavement. They clung heavy to branch and bough, sapping the life from living things. They wrapped around power lines and gnawed through insulated roofs and enveloped the city in shimmering crystal. The city was shocked by the chill and numbed by the glinting ice. And on the third night, the stars began to fall. There was something in the air that night, something chilling in a way simple cold couldn't encompass. There was a sense of dread in the air, of something final looming overhead. The winds began to blow past midnight, ice-crusted branches snapping under the stress. Power lines faltered and then failed. One by one, the lights of the city flickered out. The late freeze is a point of fact. The unseasonable weather and the power outage have been recorded in the city's climate logs. The homeless caught unawares were recovered and buried. All of this happened and is remembered. But what happened next? Unfolded as if in a dream. I watched, staring from my apartment window. Only then did I realize I could truly see the stars perhaps for the first time in my life. Every spark of light in the city below had been snuffed out by fog and ice. Every flickering flame smothered by the cold and damp, and every electric light strangled at the source. Not a car moved or started in the desolate streets below, and not a single match flame could find purchase against the oppressive, cold, dark. And in that utter darkness, the stars loomed low and heavy. I had never seen them so bare. They were faint at first, distant and unreal, but in that darkness they seemed to swarm. With every spark of light on the ground from horizon to horizon quelled and smothered, the lights of the firmament appeared. They filled the sky. Every spark of light I could recognize, Orion and Ursa Major, overwhelmed by the sprawl of millions upon millions of lights, their glow merging together into spiraling arms of nebulae. The sky was on fire, and every spark of distant light was moving. The stars started to bleed. Filaments of light began to trail downward from the brightest nexus, and soon it seemed every spark was emitting a faint, liquid line of illumination that seemed to fall down upon us. I remember shivering. The light was cold freezing or something worse, a cold born of the distant void, deeper and more cutting than anything of this world or any world that has ever known the heat of a sun. A million filaments of that shivering light drifted downward into the city, like budding trails of blooming fungi or the stinging arms of a cosmic jellyfish. Even as they passed by my window, 
They seemed far away. I couldn't focus or follow the streams upward to their source and felt myself grow faint when I tried. I remember feeling my breath freeze against my skin. I remember the sky burning bright as day as a hundred seeking limbs of light drifted through the city. And I remember them converging on the building of the one woman who might have understood what was happening. When I came to my senses, the night was nearly spent. Power had been restored, and the little, safe, electric lights of my home were blinking for attention. I ran to her apartment as quickly as I could, my mind reeling. I scribbled notes of things that seemed to be slipping from my thoughts. Even then, I almost stopped three times, my purpose nearly forgotten, the call of my distant, warm bed all but deafening. But I thought of those whispered conversations, the paintings and buntings and hanging veils and vibrant colors, and the fear in those eyes whose own color I could no longer recall. Her apartment was ransacked. Not a single piece of furniture was where it should have been. Couches were upended, dressers shattered, the bed flung against the wall, the barricaded and veiled windows obliterated, yawning into the cold night beyond. Every scrap of color was gone, bleached out of the fabrics, parchments, and even the scattered vials of pigments she painted with. It was all gray and weathered, Not the gray of mist or dawn, but an empty, distant hue. More the absence of color than any shade of its own. Every page, every tarot card, every wall, every artistic expression was gone. Replaced by empty gray. And torn and weathered into junk beyond that. But what struck me most were the crystal balls. Those eggs of untouched and impossible futures, forever stillborn... She read my future in one once, or at least told me a future that could never be. Those crystal orbs were scattered on the floor, along with all the other detritus, but they were broken. The solid hunks of crystal were shattered, fractured, and sheared roughly in half. The cuts were oddly messy, and I couldn't tell what tool or force could have made them. I remember the unnerving thought that perhaps they had broken from the inside. Every crystal orb was shattered, except one, which had somehow rolled into a corner and been buried under several pounds of canvas and cloth. It was the only thing I took with me when I left. She wasn't there. I'm not sure she was ever there. I knew she would never be there again. This all happened years ago. I had the worst dreams when I lived in the same building as that one surviving orb. Eventually, I drove away from the city, miles and miles away, until the buildings were short and flat, and trees grew in wild abundance. I walked into a forest and buried the orb in the nook of an elm's roots. I could never find that location again if I spent the rest of my life searching. But somehow, even if I could find that tree, find those roots, and dig in that place again, I doubt that crystal orb would still be there. Night fell as I returned to my home in the city, and for just a moment, I felt as though I were being watched. I can go for years without thinking about that night, but sooner or later, I take to wondering. My friend once spoke of escape. She mentioned she had fled before and may flee again. I wonder what became of her. I wonder what I witnessed that fateful night. And I wonder how she drew the attention of the thing in the stars. I still live in a city, albeit not the same one. I still live sheltered by the lights of land, crowding out the firmament above. 
but I know it's there. It's always there. Even when I cannot see it. And sometimes, I wonder if the stars are watching me now. In our final tale, we join a berry farmer who's having some trouble selling his crops. Berries. Who's ever heard of anything dramatic happening with berries? Apart from the poisonous ones. But in this tale, shared with us by author Stephen M. Fletcher, we're dealing with berries that shouldn't be a problem at all. At least, if he hadn't started on the experimental treatments. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Graham Rowett, Ellie Hirschman, Sarah Olivia, David Alt, and Aaron Lillis. So let's not worry too much about having our five a day today, and instead look into the farming of a certain fruit, and why they call it a superfood. Let's take a trip to Blueberry Hill. Benny, my distributor, called me up and said the co-op was pulling my blueberries from their shelves on suspicion of them not being organic. I got all defensive, saying, of course they were organic, which I still maintain was technically true, if it's a question of splitting hairs. My daddy always told folks that came to pick on our farm to be careful when they go grocery shopping and look at the labels, because natural ain't the same thing as organic. Well, I would add, organic doesn't necessarily mean natural. I was having this conversation with Benny on the phone in my office, which used to be my daddy's office, which was a shack out back of the farmhouse I'd grown up in. I had just gone through all the filing cabinets inside and out looking for one particular document I couldn't find. So the room was in even more disarray than usual when old Larney came shuffling in and knocked over a bunch of invoices stacked on a folding chair. Oh, darn it, Larney. Watch your fat self. I should have noticed that Lon was looking a little green around the gills. Pasty. His jaws wobbling kind of gooier than normal. His arms shook as he gestured to the footlocker where I kept the gloves and the razor blades and the box cutters. Tore my glove. Those blue latex-covered string-knit work gloves were $4.39 a pair. The day before, when I thought everything was coming up springtime, I might not have cared. But now I was peeved. Well, screw a duck, Lon. How in the hell did you do that? Fixing the lawnmower. Lon shuffled over, still reaching out with that wobbly arm. Something dripped off his elbow. A red dot landed with a thick plop on a pack of fresh manila envelopes in front of my desk. Spattered like modern art, and twice as ugly. I looked up at the elbow, following the trail running up the sleeve to the cuff of Lonnie's work shirt. 
Benny on the line was breathing more white noise down my chops about those co-op miso and pea shoots for brains running some tests. Hang on a minute, Benny. I got a better look at his palm. A real deep gash ran all the way from the space between his pinky and ring fingers to the great big hammy heel of his hand. Jesus H. Lauren. I picked the receiver back up. Benny, I'm gonna have to call you back. But listen, even if they run some goddamn tests and find something funky, that doesn't mean I'm necessarily responsible. All these farms around here use Monsanto seed and spray and fertilizer. I can't control the wind. The FDA knows that. You know that. I know that. And those patchoulis at the co-op better understand that real quick. Got me? I'm not responsible. Yeah, but, but Jace... I'll call you back. I slammed home the receiver. In my mood, I wanted there to be that satisfying ringing metal sound you get from old rotary phones. But the office phone was just plastic on plastic. Yep, Jace. But Jace... In Daddy's day, we had years of lean and years of plenty. But soon as I took over four years back, we had that late frost that shaved production off our bluettas and our early blues. Then the next year, we had an early frost that wiped out our Elliots. Then last year, we had two spring frosts that took out our early blues bluettas and our Collinses. And we had an early frost in August. August! That took out our Elliots and wreaked hell on our Covilles and Herberts. And all our mid-seasons were measly and sour. And the birds ate most of them because by then, I was using one-year disposable netting for the third year running. I couldn't afford new netting. So, you know, you meet a guy at a bar. You tell him your troubles, hard luck organic farmer, climate change. He tells you, visionary organic treatment process, nowhere to hock it. And it seems like kismet. Lon was still wobbling there, mouth-breathing gazing off at something only he could see. I bent down and got the first aid kit out of the drawer, and then I cleared a space on top of the desk for Lon to sit down on. Dabbing the gash in his hand with a cotton ball soaked in alcohol, Lonnie didn't flinch. That don't sting? <sighs> it stings some. The cotton balls kept coming away with pieces of cut-up grass. I went for another, and another. Lonnie kept wheezing. His stomach gurgled. His breath smelled like bad milk. The sweat trapped in the folds of his body smelled like month-old oatmeal in a hoarder's sink. I hadn't been this close to Lonnie in years. When I was a little boy, he used to put me on his shoulders. I don't think my daddy ever carried me like that. But I remember Lon did. He would walk me up and down the rows of blueberries in the early days when there were only 140 of them, high on his shoulders up and down the hillside. And in those days, let me tell you, back then Lonnie still smelled like work and sweat. But in those days, Lonnie smelled good. I went through half a dozen cotton balls before the cut looked anything like clean enough to wrap gauze around. Lonnie let one rip, silent and deadly. He didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. How's Carol? 
She's getting on. Baked us a blueberry pie yesterday. Our blueberries? Yep. Had it for dessert last night. Breakfast this morning. Still another slice waiting for me. Unless Carol had it. But she'll probably save it. <laughs> Lonnie stretched his neck and I heard a sound like leather. Lonnie wasn't wearing any leather. Something different about the crop this year. <laughs> he wasn't looking at me, just staring off at some spot around the ceiling. But still, mighty fine. <laughs> <laughs> he coughed hard into his shoulder. Sounded wet. I used the last big bandage and all the gauze. I needed to restock. <sighs> that would cost me. What was wrong with the lawnmower? Just gummed up some. I fetched a fresh pair of work gloves and handed them to Larney. You gotta be more careful, Larn. These gloves aren't cheap. Yup. <clears throat> He shuffled back outside across the lawn toward the overturned lawnmower. I went to the door and called after him. And also, you know, for your sake too. And that was my last ever real conversation with Larney. Can you believe that? I should have told him he needed stitches. I thought... He's a grown man. He, he ought to know he needs stitches. I should have taken Lon to the hospital myself. Even though I'm sure it was too late for that. Lonnie and Carol were like the aunt and uncle I never had. That didn't mean I understood them at all. They used to have me around over Christmas every year, right around the anniversary of Dad's death. Those were always kind of awkward occasions. With Carol, all we could talk about is how Mom was getting on in Florida. And all Lon and I had in common was the Red Sox. I did wonder from time to time what it must be like to be Larney. Mostly just glad I wasn't. Carol at least had her mystery novels and her crime shows. But what did Lon have going on upstairs? I don't think I ever saw the man smile or read a newspaper or express much of an opinion. If he wasn't puttering around working on something, he wasn't doing nothing. I kept telling him to take weekends off like the rest of the farmhands because the weekends were when families showed up and picked their own blueberries. But here he was, on a Saturday, doing odd jobs like fixing a lawnmower that didn't need fixing. Work and home, home and work, blueberry pie for breakfast and dessert. I was working up the courage to call Benny back, but then a family came in from the fields with the baskets they had picked for me to weigh. It was only the second group that had been by so far that day. The previous year, we closed to the public since the crop was so bad, and word hadn't really spread that we were back open for business. That was fine by me. We made bank because of the co-op and the farmer's market, and to a lesser extent, thanks to a deal with the Shannon's Dairy Farm down the road who made their blueberry ice cream exclusively from our blueberries. 
Of course, the last couple of years, that hadn't turned out so good for the Shannons. But just that morning, little Sophie Shannon had driven over in her mama's truck to pick up more blueberries ahead of the delivery day because, she said, their blueberry ice cream was selling like wildfire. Seriously, these are the best blueberries, and they stay so juicy even frozen in the ice cream. I've probably eaten a gallon of them myself. I have to say, her saying that made me uneasy. And it made me uneasy ringing up this nice-looking family with their squeaky little three- and five-year-olds smashing fistfuls of early blues in their mouth. I got sick of blueberries by the time I was ten, but I always tasted my own crop. Not that year. I was too squeamish knowing what they'd been treated with. Cuttlefish ink. Specifically, the ink of a species found in the deep ocean called Sepia Charybdis. Very rare. Dr. Graftasio had a specimen preserved in a fish tank full of liquid that glowed sickly green. This is not she, but one of her smaller cousins, Sepia apama, found off the coast of Australia. It took up the whole tank. A big, ugly football with a face. Stumpy tentacles like fingers in a glove where you'd expect teeth to be. Made me nauseous. I was a little drunk. We had closed out the bar and Gravtasio had invited me for a nightcap back at his lab in an otherwise empty strip mall, which was a converted restaurant space that I could remember having been an Italian place when I was little, a Balkan place when I was in high school, and a Cantonese place last time I checked. I could remember when the fish tank we were looking at now had live fish in it, so I knew that light-up background was supposed to be blue. The fact that it was green meant that the liquid was probably yellow. Formaldehyde, I'm guessing. What else do you preserve dead things in? The thing inside looked black against the green, so I figured in better light, it was probably red. Sapia. Like an old photograph. Gravtasio was never not smiling. Very good, Jason, yes. The ancient Greeks derived a pigment from cuttlefish ink, hence the English sepia, reddish-brown. People have been dying with it and cooking with it since time immemorial. Now, I have used it to distill an organic compound that deters pests, deters birds, acts as a natural fertilizer, has antifungal properties, and, most remarkably, protects against frost making it ideal for the blueberry farmer. He took me to the walk-in freezer. The thermostat said minus 10. There were some big tanks against the back wall. Racks lined the sidewalls that I assume were full of science stuff, though all I saw were various different sizes of cardboard boxes with packing materials spilling out. Reminded me of my office. In the center of the freezer, under sun lamps, were three potted blueberry bushes in full fruit. Very large, light blue Blu-rays, medium-sized Stanleys, and little late blues. Three varieties with three different growing seasons, 
And this was January. Gravitasio brushed a few handfuls of blueberries from each bush into an empty beaker, then walked us back out. In the main room, where the dining room tables had all been cleared out except for a few booths along one wall, Gravitasio had set up with lab equipment. Some of its stuff I recognized from high school, like Bunsen burners on one of those big, long tables with sinks and gas nozzles built into it. Which, come to think of it, he'd probably gotten secondhand from a high school. As well as equipment I couldn't identify. Things with dials and knobs and boxy gray things that were probably all secondhand as well. But he ignored all that poured the blueberries out onto a circular tray inside one of those little display cabinets with a heat lamp inside that keeps food warm, uh, like you might see at a gas station. It said fresh hot pizza at the top. He only turned on the heat lamp for a minute or so. We don't want to cook them. We'll just let them sit for a bit to come the rest of the way to room temperature on their own. Room temperature was pretty cold. I don't think he had the heat on. I stayed wearing my coat. Then he refilled our scotches, sat me down in a booth, and disappeared into the kitchen. I heard a microwave running. Smelled something garlicky. And suddenly realized how drunk hungry I was for something fatty and starchy. A minute later, Graftasio returned with two steaming bowls. Graftasio, you're a lifesaver. Then I looked down into a bowl full of black worms and white gunk. Gravitasio twisted a fork around his dish. Cuttlefish ink pasta in cream sauce. Okay. I thought, this guy's a bit of a cuttlefish nut. But it smelled good and I ate it. Kind of briny, but decent, long as I didn't look at it. In a few minutes, I was sobering up and beginning to ask myself some questions, specifically regarding Graftasio's angle. But before I could formulate a coherent sentence, Graftasio cut into my thoughts. I'm curious about the mentality of the organic farmer. Is the refusal to adopt modern advances a matter of principle for you? Principle? I thought about it. Thought about how mom and me had to work and work and work on daddy to get him to do chemo. How the only thing that convinced him in the end was finding an herbalist who said she knew what kinds of herbs worked best alongside all the chemicals. I remember daddy exhausted and crying in the hospital room, moaning, This ain't natural. Well, it was definitely a matter of principle for my daddy. For me, it's just how I make a living. Now I always made a living. That's good to hear. Graftasio's head was bald and leathery like a grapefruit, with owly eyes that smiled huge behind bifocals. I do find the concept to be quaint, even charming, but it is difficult for me to wrap my head around other people's zealotry. There are zealots in the biotech industry who genuinely believe they're saving the world. Zealotry, I thought. Was it zealotry for Larney? When he and Carol had just had me over around Christmas last, I let slip to Larn that 
business being what it was, I was having to rethink a lot of things, including the whole organic angle. Oh, Jace, you don't want to do that, he said. I heard something sad come into his voice. I never heard Larney say something that sounded so near like disappointment. Made me feel shamed. After clearing our plates, Graptasio tossed a few of those little cellophane packets of oyster crackers my way. Told me to have some as a palate cleanser. Then he brought over the platter of blueberries. The first thing I noticed was that they didn't look like blueberries that had been frozen. Defrosted blueberries always still have that dark, wet look. When I picked one up and squeezed it, I found out it still had that bouncy give. Turgid pressure or whatnot. Graftasio was still smiling, beaming even. He scooped some up, popped them in his mouth, and started chewing. I put the one I was holding in my mouth and tentatively crushed it between two molars. It was like... A bright blue ray of sunshine flooded over my taste buds. Sitting in that cold booth in that cold room, feeling the cold on my nose and cheeks and in the bones of my fingers and tasting summertime, it was damn near uncanny. Screw a duck. But the same thing that convinced me to give Graftasio the go-ahead to treat my crops with his squid ink was the same thing that made those hippies at the co-op suspicious. Benny told me the story when I worked up the nerve to call him back after the family left. The last family that would ever pick blueberries on my farm. This was early in the season and we'd only been selling to the co-op for a few weeks but that was long enough for some hippie with some experience to notice that my blueberries weren't getting wrinkly and moldy fast as blueberries generally do. Maybe it's not a conscious thought, just a... How about that? Then this same hippie finds a pint of my blueberries buried beneath a three-pound bag of frozen ones. It happens. Customers pick up the fresh ones, realize the frozen ones are cheaper by the pound, and hey, they're just going in smoothies anyway, so they swap them out can't be bothered to put the fresh ones back where they go so they get ruined so the employee takes them in the back to be written off as spoiled and donated to the local food pantry then she gets busy comes back a few hours later and finds as i did that these blueberries show no sign of ever having been frozen in the first place well maybe she was wrong maybe they weren't frozen through but this particular hippie has a scientific frame of mind. She draws an X on top of the pint in permanent marker, then she leaves it in the freezer overnight. She also takes another container of blueberries and leaves them in a paper bag overnight with a piece of moldy fruit and a fresh pack of strawberries. In this heat, the strawberries are covered in hair the next day. Not my blueberries. And we know what she finds when she thaws the other pint. She presents the evidence to her boss, and together, what do they conclude? That my blueberries can't be organic. But Graftasio's process was organic. He explained it to me. What could be more organic than a naturally occurring substance like cuttlefish ink? 
That was one of the reasons the biotech company stopped funding his research. They couldn't patent an already existing species of cuttlefish. But I couldn't tell that to Benny. There's more, Jace. It would be one thing if they just thought your blueberries were some weird new GMO. But some of their employees have been calling in sick, and some of their regular customers have been dropping off. And, well, they're not sure yet, but they're thinking it may be your blueberries. I felt something drop in my stomach. I hadn't seen Mrs. Edelman since the first farmer's market of the season. And she hadn't missed a farmer's market in 20 years. I've wondered a lot since then about why most people weren't affected or were only mildly affected. Why some folks reacted right away while it took some folks gradually. And all I can figure aside from differences in body types is that most people don't just sit down and eat a ton of blueberries all at once. They might just have some mixed into a fruit salad or a few handfuls in their pancakes. They usually only have a lot if they're having them in a pie or a crumble or something. Well, th then how come I ain't sick? You think I don't try my own blueberries? I don't know, Jace. Of course, as I'd already said, I hadn't and hadn't had a Gravitasio-treated blueberry since that night in his lab when I scarfed down a good share. I remembered how I felt the next day, like some critter had scratched its way down my throat and kicked the hell out of my guts from the inside. Spent the day on the couch with an ice pack over my eyes and a hot water bottle over my intestines. I thought it was a hangover, but it turned out to be the flu coming on. I more than half convinced myself later that a lot of what I experienced that day must have been a fever dream. But nevertheless, this is how I remember it. Around 4.30, as the sun was setting, I made my way to the window, squinting out over the hillside of dormant blueberry bushes, yellow grasses, and hard brown dead earth under gray, gray sky. With the trees bare, I could see all the way to the road where a big white crew van was tracking across the horizon. Something made me notice it. It turned up my drive and I thought, what the hell? It parked on the dead lawn alongside my blueberry field and I remembered. The deal. The handshake. Moving fast as I could, which wasn't fast, I threw a winter coat over my sick clothes and hobbled to the front door. Raftasio was already standing there, waiting. Salutations, Jason. He was beaming in one of those Russian hats with the ear flaps and a big black parka that made him look like an Arctic explorer. Strong as a fiddle, no sign of him being hung over at all. Over his shoulder, I could see that crew van, which had a logo on the side. Some geometric shape too far away for me to read it, and it hurt my eyes when I tried to. Half a dozen workers were dropping down out of the van to go creeping across my fields. They were wearing full body suits with backpack sprayer tanks and respirator masks. From the distance we were at, they looked a lot like big bugs. Wind kicked up and blew through my open door into the house, rustling newspapers and the calendar, cutting through my pajama bottoms to my shins. 
big nor'easter on the way, they're predicting. I crossed my arms tighter around myself. I was sweating and shivering at the same time. I thought we'd do this in the spring. <laughs> oh dear, dear me, no, no, no. Best to do it now while the branches are bare, to let the treatment soak in. The workers had spaced themselves out evenly around the rows, standing stock still, waiting. What's with the hazmat suits? I thought this stuff was safe. Oh, quite safe, but there have to be precautions in place for insurance purposes. <laughs> They're independent contractors. I've worked with them before. Gravtasio handed me a clipboard and a pen. A dotted line for me to sign on. The thing is, I can't pay for this just yet. Jason, I have no doubt that after this year, after this treatment, money will no longer be an issue for you. But pay me when you can. I looked down, all around and up. The cloud cover was total and completely still. Ridged like the inside roof of a mouth. I signed the paper, handed it back. The minute I did, I heard from inside the van the bleed of a goat. And then clump, clump, clump. A goat came slow walking down the ramp out of the van, looking at me sidelong with its rectangular pupils. It was on a rope leash being held by one final figure wearing an oily black cloak and a cowl. A woman with no shoes or socks or anything on her legs from what I could see of her ice-blue calves. I'm sure my jaw dropped open. Gravtasio followed my gaze and we watched the woman walk, talking slow, deliberate steps to the highest point of the hill. She held her arms in front of her, clutching the rope and something I'm pretty sure was some sort of knife. They really are the best for this sort of work. I, I think I mentioned how zealotry perplexes me, but on occasion I do find myself forced to do business with people who have rather deeply entrenched belief systems. The woman stood on top of the hill, kept a cowl down and threw her cloak open. Sure enough, she was wearing a birthday suit underneath. She started chanting call-and-response style with the workers in the field in a language that sounded like it didn't have any vowels in it. My head was aching so bad, the words seemed to jounce around in my skull. Graftasio, you're a Red Sox fan, ain't you? Then I dropped to my knees and threw up Black Bile right there on the porch. The workers started spraying. I was sick for another ten days. On the first day, whatever Gravtasio's independent contractors had sprayed on my field reeked like seaweed and fish guts so bad I could smell it inside the house. It coated my bushes so thick I could see it caked on from my bedroom window. Like tar all over them, only reddish brown. The day after that, we did get a nor'easter as Gravtasio said we would. And the snow covered up the side and the smell of them. 
In late February, when it finally thawed, there was no trace of the stuff. In the spring, usually you can see the birds biding their time in the trees, waiting for those blueberries to reach just the point of perfect ripeness. But this year, I didn't see hide nor hair of them. The trees were silent. I was almost hoping for a late frost just to see what would happen. But we didn't get one. And we had the biggest harvest of early blues and bluettas since my daddy's day. They sold like crazy for the first week, the second week, and on Friday of the third week, the day before that call from Benny, I gave all my farmhands a pint to take home. And then I drove over to that depressing strip mall to cut Graftasio's check in person. The place was vacated. I could see through the window that all the science stuff was gone. The pizza warmer was still there, knocked over on the floor. The fish tank was drained, empty. A sign in the window saying the space was for rent had a number on it, so I called. I talked to three different agents who all told me the same thing. The space had been empty since November, two months before Graftasio just so happened to be drinking at the same bar as me. Graftasio never gave me a card. There had to be contact info on that contract, but... I went back and searched my office and I couldn't find it. Now, Daddy would have had kittens if he could have seen the state I usually kept my office in, but I always kept track of contracts. Thinking about it, I couldn't remember if I'd ever gotten a copy. Which, granted, I was sick at the time, but that would have just been plain bad business sense. So despite all the evidence piling up to the contrary, including my own addled memories and gut sense, I started working to convince myself that maybe none of it had ever actually happened at all. And it occurred to me, on the phone to Benny, that Longus Graftasio and his contract stayed disappeared, for all intents and purposes, none of it had happened. Benny, I honestly can't account for why this year's crop is so hardy. But these here are the same 140 bushes my daddy planted 35 years ago, and the 160 I got him to plant going on 12 years ago. And that me and mine been tending with love and care all the long while. So they can send my blueberries to some lab, but all they're gonna find is some good old-fashioned family farming know-how. Then the call waiting signal beeped that little red light on the phone cradle started blinking. Screw a duck, that's him. My mouth went dry. Benny was making noise again about the people getting sick. Hang on, Benny. I heard him sigh. I hit the switch over button. But it wasn't Graftasio. It was Carol. I was relieved for a split second, but felt a whole different kind of worry. Because I could tell just from hearing her say my name that she sounded weird. Wavery. Like she was about to cry. She said my name again, stretching it out. Hissing. <laughs> Carol. What's the matter? 
You want to talk to Larney? Carol? Uh, you having a stroke? She started speaking again, but it sounded like nonsense. Like choking. <laughs> Hang in there, Carol. I'm calling 911. I hung up on Benny without thinking about it and called 911. After giving them Carol and Lonnie's address, I switched back to the other line and I was about to say help was on the way, but the sound she was making with her throat scared me so bad, I couldn't say anything. It didn't sound like sounds a human voice should be able to make. Too low, and then too high. Still basically nonsense sounds. But as I listened, unable to drop the receiver, the sound she was making almost started to sound like words. Little hairs went up all over my body. I slammed home the receiver, knocking the phone across my desk, spilling a bunch of papers. The sound she had been making ricocheting around inside my head. After a moment, I realized I had backpedaled my office chair into the wall. Every fiber of my body trying to get as far away from the phone as possible. I started breathing again and instantly felt bad. Like a fool. I should have kept her on the line. Should have gotten Lon in to talk to her, calm her down. I ran out of my office and caught sight of Larney. He was away on the lawn between the house and the field, still hunched over that overturned lawnmower. Jogging over, I thought, how could that old fool still be working on that thing? And I thought, what am I going to tell him? I slowed as I got nearer, and when I was near enough to shout, I said his name, Larney. calm as I could. Old Larney looked up at me with his milky yellow eyes, his mouth a loose O with wet pink caterpillars for lips, jowls trembling. I thought, does he know somehow what I'm about to tell him? But something was wrong. He started to shudder like my office mini-fridge. Vibrate is more like it. I would have thought he was getting electrocuted, except there was nothing around for him to get electrocuted on. It was a gas mower. But Lonnie, crouching there, was shaking and revving up, cranking up like the backup propane generator. His hands shook like a marionette puppet's inside the fresh pair of work gloves, which were already soiled and stained with dirt, grass, and sweat blood and blueberries. A thick, heavy, nostril-stinging smoke, like car exhaust. Brownish-red crept out from between the buttons of his work shirt and up from his collar, spilling down towards the ground. Jesus H. Lord, what's the matter with you? Sweat beaded on his lips and poured off his chin as his teeth came together he hissed a sound that was maybe meant to be my name, and made a longer, desperate, heartbreaking, choking sound that I know was supposed to be Carol. My jaw hung open as I watched the sweat darken his forehead to a rusty brown, then keep darkening to a purplish black. Around his ears, the skin started to blister and bubble. When I was little, 
My daddy bought a used heat gun from a paint store for some project or other. Looked like a metal industrial grade hairdryer. I was always fascinated by what it would do to things. And when dad wasn't looking, I'd cook down styrofoam cups into hard little shells and melt blue plastic picnic cups into puddles. What Lonnie's skin was doing around his cheeks and jawline was like chewed grape bubblegum being boiled under that heat gun. A comparison, which, as soon as it occurred to me, made me feel guilty, but also almost struck me as a funny, funny enough to make me laugh out loud, except I didn't, I couldn't, I was frozen, mortified, slack-jawed, Lonnie's shirt was rippling in a weird way, and his hat was sort of jumping on his head, I watched it, unable even to ask myself why I was doing that. And then from under the brim of the hat, and up from his collar, and out from between the buttons of his shirt, little squirmy, wormy things started poking out and flapping around. And from the bubbling flesh at the sides of his face, more wriggly little tentacles started popping through, crackling like bubble wrap and hissing like steam. His hat fell off and I saw that his whole head was wriggling and flapping with these little worms, like he had them for hair. It was like when you see videos of sperm trying to get inside an egg, the way they crowd around and wiggle, like Lonnie's head was the egg. In fact, his whole body was the egg. I realized as the gloves got themselves pushed off by more and more of those little things, Except, these weren't trying to get inside, Lardy. They were coming out of his skin. Their little whipping tails cut through the air, making a thousand tiny whistles that added up to a great big roar. Like a rattlesnake. Lon's purple river of a face was the only place not covered in all those little flesh worms. And in that face... His eyes were still Larnie's sad, old, quietly knowing eyes that I now saw were wiser than I'd ever credited before. I watched as blood spots broke out in the whites and spread around his corneas like ink drops on a paper napkin. Larnie's lips moved one more time, and out came a sound, a word, a word in that nasty language that sounded like it was already inside my own head. And even though I couldn't understand it, I felt like I knew it somehow. Like it wasn't just a word, but something that was underneath all words and all languages. Like something even that was underneath what words mean. From between Lon's lips, a black bubble started to form oily and glistening with shades of blueberries and rust, like a plum forcing itself out between his teeth. And before I knew it, the ball spat out of his mouth, shot itself right through my open jaws and lodged in my throat. It was bittersweet and rancid, like dirt pickled and puke. I had fallen on my back and was looking up at the sky. 
The sky was pulsing, squirming, looking down on me. It was a clear blue day, and I was seeing what the sky was really made of. Something overwhelming and knowing. If I could have breathed, I would have screamed my head off. I flipped myself around so I was looking at the grass. That was even worse. Each blade of grass was alive and raw and screaming. My knees and palms on the grass were causing the grass pain and blind anger. And I could feel its pain and anger. I turned my head sideways and saw a field full of writhing, crazy, buzzing things. Hundreds of them, all lined up in rows. And I realized it was my blueberry bushes. Everything else that I was seeing, feeling, the wailing, crazy hunger of insects and the mad roar of the wind, terrifying as it all was, I could tell I was just seeing more clearly what was already going on in the world all the time. The true, horrible, ancient struggle of living things to live. But those bushes, so dark they were sucking in light and radiating menace. I could tell they were just wrong, out of place, and they were all droning a sound that wasn't a sound. I felt everything on every inch of my body. My clothes, each drop of sweat. And when I started to feel myself as millions and billions of tiny little living things, each one fighting madly to live, somehow my mind turned inward and I fell into myself. This is the part I've told all the doctors and never been able to really get across. Best I can say is, it was like falling forever down a hole. And I was the hole. Forever and ever, like ten million years. But somewhere in there, I felt Lonnie's hands on my back, telling me to heave. Let it out, Chase. I did. I vomited the black plum up onto the grass where it burst and seeped into the soil. I knew now the soil was alive. But suddenly, I couldn't see or hear it anymore. I collapsed and took gulping breaths that burned my throat. I discovered I had pissed myself and crapped my pants. Somehow, I'd banged myself up pretty bad. I felt the beginnings of bruises on my shins, hips, and the flats of my hands. My chin was scraped up raw. I was now on the opposite side of the lawn, away from the overturned lawnmower, which was on and humming with the blades unable to spin, what with Lonnie's body face-planted inside of it. They tried to convince me later that it was me that put him in there, but that's not how I remember it. I shuffled over and turned the thing off. The little wire that gives resistance and makes it switch off automatically when you let go had come unhooked, either intentionally or unintentionally, by either me or Lonnie or just by chance. 
I do not know. I found Lorne's hat. I placed it over the mess where his head should have been. I had the wherewithal to torch my blueberry fields, methodically pouring gas from the gas can in a few strategic locations. When I found I didn't have enough, getting a hose and siphoning gas from my truck, I watched the fields where I'd spent my youth and my life go up for a while. Next thing I knew, I'd been walking for some time and was inside of the Shannon's ice cream stand. I was all of a sudden aware of the horrible taste still in my mouth and, for some reason, thought it would be the most natural thing in the world to walk right up to the counter, beat to hell, covered in gore and smelling like feces, and order a vanilla sugar cone. I didn't even consciously notice how the family sitting at picnic tables and benches enjoying the long summer twilight stopped licking their ice creams and reached for the cell phones. I also didn't think it was odd that the long line of customers moved out of the way and let me get right up to the window. I looked through the window, and there was Sophie Shannon, the spitting image of her mom in high school. Little Sophie Shannon, who always did more work than either of her brothers unloading the blueberries on delivery day, and who always slipped Lon a pint of Carol's favorite mint chip. I went right up to Sophie Shannon, and she and I had a nice conversation. In a language, I think we were the only two of us around who understood. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.